What's up, y'all? Welcome back into the Lacrosse Bucket Podcast. Tanner Demling here with y'all. As always, we are here on Monday, June 6th, recording this a week after the college cross season has come to an end with the Maryland Terrapins hoisting the national championship trophy, taking it back to College Park the first time since 2017, the fourth time in the NCAA era. Since the season's end, we've seen A, the coaching carousel ramp up with Bryant being added to the list of head coaching openings over the past week as Mike Pressler retired uh, from his post there in Smithfield on Friday evening, officially, and was announced as the head coach at Highland Park in Texas this afternoon. Uh, We'll see what he does down there. In the, Lone Star, in the Lone Star State with one of the best high school programs in the state in Highland Park. Wanted to start things off today with the transfer portal. And first and foremost, some transfer portal news or updates, I should say. Griffin College, it's been made official that he will be heading to Virginia as he has made that official and follows in the footsteps of his brother, Kyle, who won two national titles with the Cavaliers. Six foot two, 189 pound defenseman, you know, made a sizable impact for the Spiders. This past season as a freshman, started 15 of 16 games for the 8th best scoring defense in college lacrosse as they allowed 10.06 goals per game. That included, uh, th- that season included the 17-13 upset of the Cavaliers, which the Spiders held the Virginia offense uh, to just four goals in the second half of play. College grabbed 21 ground balls, 21 caused turnovers this past season and, and was named an all-second-team uh, all-SOCON selection. He'll join a defense at Virginia in Charlottesville that returns Cole Kastner, Kate Sostad, Quentin Matusi, as well as goalie Matthew Nunes, among others. So uh, we'll see how that defense looks there in Charlottesville next season. Now, in addition to the number of players entering and making their decisions about where they will transfer to next season, we've also seen um, the continuation, I would say, of this conversation that sounds something like this. Transfer portal bad. Transfer portal not good, transfer portal killing college lacrosse, transfer portal hurting mid-major programs, transfer portal only making the rich richer. 
that could not be farther from the truth. That could not be farther from the truth. Well, yes, the Maryland's and the Dukes and the Notre Dame's and the Virginia's of the world will always acquire the best talent for the most part, and will do so via recruiting as well as the transfer portal. However, for every player who transfers to a, to a high major, whether doing so from a you know, fellow Blue Blood or major program, or whether they're moving up from a mid-major or at, at times a Division II or Division III program, um, for, for every player who makes that jump, there's a player who's making a jump, and I'm doing air quotes here, down to a mid-major program. And also, just like how there are a number of mid-major players, mid-major stars, who will make that jump to the ACC, the Big Ten, you also have players who make the jump from Division Two, Division Three, the JUCO ranks, to these mid-major programs. And as I mentioned before, players who make the jump from a Maryland or a Duke or a Virginia to a mid-major program. I don't think there are many, uh, you know, there's not a better example of this than a Stony Brook and a Towson. Uh, Towson, this past season, uh, literally their entire offense was... um, Maryland transfers, and then you had Luke Schilling, who was a Johns Hopkins transfer. I mean, James Alvazanto started his career at Maryland. Nick DeMeo started his career at Maryland. Kyle Berkeley started his career at Maryland. Luke Schilling started his career at Johns Hopkins. Stony Brook this season. Dylan Palinetti came in prior to the 2021 season. Chris Murray was a grad transfer from Virginia. You had Kevin Mack, who was another grad transfer on the offensive end there uh, with, with Palinetti. Palinetti was a uh, regular transfer after his freshman year at Maryland, redshirt freshman year. Kevin Mack, a grad transfer from Michigan. These are... Nope, Long Island guys, Mac and Palinetti are, that came back home at various different times in their careers from a stint at a Big Ten program, Michigan and Maryland. Chris Murray is a Long Island guy who was at Virginia and has you know came back this season as a grad transfer from a major program in Virginia where he helped them win two national titles. And like that's just the tip of the iceberg in the number of transfers that we saw from uh, on st- the Stony Brook roster this past season. Dan Newton transferred from Manhattan. They had transfers from Colgate on their team. UMass Lowell, JUCOs, 
Division Two and Division Three programs. So, while yes, certainly the big time programs will always benefit and will always get first dibs on the top end talent, the transfer portal, you know, by way of making it easier to transfer and by way of making it maybe more comfortable to transfer where you don't have to go get permission from your coach and get a waiver and be told what programs you can and cannot go to, uh, this makes it a free market. And in a free market, everybody is at play. Now, certainly the uh, service academies and the IVs would be at a disadvantage in many cases, uh, especially the service academies uh, in the transfer Olympics, if you want to call it that. But when you get down to it, this is a good thing. The transfer portal is a good thing. I would say it is one of the most revolutionizing things in college lacrosse. It has made the game better. It may not even the playing field all the time because the transfer portal giveth and the transfer portal taketh. But, you know, it doesn't, it, it, it's not bad. It, it is not out here hurting mid-majors like people think it, thinks, thinks it is. It, it, it's simply not. It, it is simply not. And as I said, for every mid-major star that goes to a high major or blue blood program, there is a blue blood or high major star who transfers down, whether it be a grad transfer or a player who you know didn't work out uh, there, was redshirted or whatever the issue was. Jacksonville is a great example of this, as well as Stony Brook and Towson, who I mentioned a bit earlier. Jacksonville had this season a number of transfers who highlighted their team. Max Waldbaum was a former Tufts player and at the, the Division Three level. He comes in and leads them on the offensive end. Okay. In Cage, you had Luke Milliken, who formerly was the starting goalkeeper at North Carolina. Jacksonville next season will have Dylan Watson on campus in the fall. And he transfers from Georgetown, one of the best attackmen in college lacrosse. Now he's a grad transfer. So that is a different, um, you know, different ilk there in terms of what you're looking for uh, most of the time with the grad transfers. But Jacksonville is getting a very good player in Dylan Watson. They're getting a player that you could put on any team in the country and he would most likely be a starter. So this is not the rich getting richer all the time. Yes, the rich do get dibs on a lot of talent. That's just the fact of the matter. 
It's like that in recruiting, and it's like that in the transfer market as well. It's always been like that. So for anyone to say the portal is bad, the portal is killing major major programs, the portal is hurting the balance of power or the competitiveness or decreasing the amount of parity in college lacrosse has no idea what they are talking about and honestly is kidding themselves if they're actually saying that and actually believing that because it is simply unequivocally false. End of story. End of story. It is false. It is absolutely false. There are so many examples. As I've gone through on here, Stony Brook, Towson, Jacksonville, numerous other examples. Division two programs getting guys who have transferred down. Division three programs getting guys who have transferred down. There is so many examples of how the portal works both ways. And for anyone to turn a blind eye to that, and just look at the talent that these high major programs are getting, that, 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 that is just simply you know, stupid. That is just simply stupid. And I'll add this. Rutgers, you know, for the majority of that program's existence, has not been a competitor when it comes to the national landscape. And while Brian Brecht certainly built a competitor without the transfer portal, the transfer portal getting Colin Coast, getting Connor Coast the year before that, getting a Ronan Jacoby and numerous other players this season, has helped Rutgers get to the level that they needed to be at to make championship weekend for the first time ever. So there are still teams in the Big Ten, in the ACC, who, you know, and more so in the Big Ten, where you do have a larger number of teams who have not won a national title, Rutgers, Penn State, Ohio State, Michigan, that can really use and do use the portal to help fill holes and fill gaps. And Rutgers did exactly what they needed to do this past season, and they had a great season with it. Now, what I do understand is people who say, well, the portal hurts the younger players. And I can understand where you see that, because you are getting these mostly older guys coming in here and jumping over, oftentimes, these players who are freshmen or sophomores. And, well, I can certainly see that argument of how it hinders development. I also want to say this. You have players who are moving around, okay? Players who have different experiences. Now, teams who are very veteran-heavy leaning on the portal that doesn't mean that those players underneath are not going to be developed. Now, 
the increase in roster sizes in 2021, I think, was um, a net negative in many instances and many programs to younger players. And, and that's unfortunate. But that was also due to players getting able to come back and a much larger number of players doing so than I think, uh, you know, most intended. And also that is dwindled in the years to come. And I think we have one, two years left of that. And it it, it looks very much like it's going to dwindle um, again as it is dwindling this season as well. So those players, those young players that might feel they've gotten passed over or recruited over, um, I, I, you know, that's business. That, that, that's just business. And if that happens to you, that happened to your kid, um, look, it, that is un, un, unfortunate. Unfortunate prod, product of the business of college class. And you, you, as a coach, you're trying to win. And you're trying to better your program as best as you can. But I'll also offer this. Having those veteran guys on there can help give those young players experience as well. So it's not always necessarily a bad thing. And again, like I mentioned with the portal in general, it works both ways. It's a net good. So again, for anyone to say the portal is bad, the portal is all that's wrong with college lacrosse or college athletics has no idea what they are talking about. All right, enough portal talk. Let's move into week one of the PLL. And uh, this will be kind of a quick segment here. Just want to uh, – going to do this this summer, just weekend reactions from the PLL. And um, week one this weekend – we saw Whip Snakes beat Chaos nine to eight. Atlas beat Redwoods uh, seventeen to eleven. The Cannons beat the Water Dogs sixteen to ten, and the Chrome beat the Archers eleven to ten. The biggest reaction I had to Week One, and really my biggest takeaway from Week One, was this Atlas attack line. I mean, this Atlas attack line is insane. And, you know, you looked at that roster coming in the season. You knew this was going to be a pretty good team. All the rosters in the PLL are stacked. But you knew this attack line in particular was going to be pretty good when they drafted Chris Gray. When they drafted Chris Gray. And, I mean, you mean to tell me you have a an attack line of Jeff T, Eric Ball, and Chris Gray. That should be illegal. Okay, that is borderline illegal. That is a lethal, lethal weapon you carry there, son. Uh, ben Rubior, you have an attack line there that is just outrageously good, outrageously talented, outrageously lethal. Jeff T, five goals, two assists, seven points on the weekend uh, in the win over Redwoods. And it was a pretty significant win at that 17 to 11. Got that image of a. Uh, not saying Laurent bending over, kind of saying, oh, uh, I mean, they, they absolutely took it to him. This offense did. Eric Wall also had seven points, three goals, four assists. Chris Gray went two and one for three points on the day. 
that is 10 goals and 17 points between the three. That Atlas attack line, absolutely insane. You also saw Brian Costbeal, John Crowley, uh, the new offensive coordinator at Johns Hopkins, uh, just go to town as well uh, as solid, solid contributors there at the midfield of this offense also. So a really, really good win for Atlas and uh, on on the weekend that I think really for me highlighted the weekend um, in terms of the most surprising result, I guess you could say. And, you know, you look at an attack line with Jeff T, Eric Law, Chris Gray, and you say, okay, well, well, who kind of gets left out in terms of the production. And when you go seven, seven and three in terms of, you know, the amount of points you put up, that is leaving no stone unturned. That is getting what you want at every corner. That is doing what you want on every possession. They absolutely took it to that Redwoods defense on Saturday and really, really put up some incredible numbers there. That Atlas attack line did really, again, highlighting week one of the PLL there in Albany. There will be week two this weekend in Charlotte, North Carolina on Friday, Chrome and Redwoods, Chaos and Archers on Saturday. Atlas and Cannons and Whip Snakes and Water Dogs. That Atlas Cannons game will be on ESPN2. The rest of those games will be on ESPN+. Hope for another great weekend of PLL action as the season continues to get underway there in the Premier Lacrosse League. Again, in Charlotte, North Carolina, this Weekend for week two, June 10th and June 11th. Now, this last segment here of the show, uh, this is something I'm going to kind of continue to do. Uh, we're looking at you know, a, a lot of what I've been kind of writing about since the end of the college cross season. So this past week or so, I've looked at you know, some of the top freshmen at multiple different positions uh, this week, I'll be looking at multiple breakout players. We also have a article coming out on, uh, should be by the time y'all listen to this, on the you know teams who impressed, teams who disappointed. I want to get to that here uh, to end the show. So teams, and I'm only going to do the teams that surprised me this season. So that is what we'll do here. Uh, teams who surprised or exceeded expectations here in 2022. Uh, I think you have to start off with Cornell. You know, this was a team that I think a lot of people, there was a lot of questions about, uh, just like with every other Ivy League program. Um, but a lot of people, myself included, thought there was a lot of potential there and thought that they had a chance to be pretty good. However, did I ever think 
they were going to make it to championship weekend. No, that didn't even cross my mind about Cornell until they actually did it. Um, that, that, that didn't cross my mind at all, um, that they would be able to make that run and play for the national title and, you know, come within two goals of Maryland. No, I, I never thought they would do that. Um, and, I mean, when, when you have that attack line of C.J. Coach, John Piatelli, and, and Michael Long, midfielders such as Hugh Kelleher, you know, running down and just bulldozing guys, cover guys like Gavin Adler that, that, that can lead the way on that defensive end. Angelo Petrakis, I thought, you know, while he was a little up and down at times early on in the season, really, you know, honed in his craft there down the stretch for the Big Red, and then Chase Irwin and Cage to anchor that defense. This was a really good Cornell team, and this was a Cornell team that I think, uh, you know, really is the epitome of an overachiever in 2022. First year of a new head coach. Now, granted, he'd been on the staff. He played there. All of that kind of music. Uh, you know, being ingrained in that Cornell culture. Uh, but I don't think anybody, I certainly didn't expect this team to be playing on Memorial Day. That That is certainly a, you know, exceeding expectations. I expected them to be good. I expected them to be competing for an Ivy League title um, and, and be in the postseason. But to go as far as they did, absolutely not. Another team here in the Ivy League that, I, I, you know, I, I was very, you know, surprised with what they did was Harvard. Um, but when Jerry Bo was hired, th- this was a, a Harvard program that many expected, uh, you know, would have success under Jerry Bone. Uh, the, the question was, you know, how soon? And in his first full season as uh, with, with the Crimson, um, they go eight and five, three and three in the Ivy League, making the NCAA tournament for the first time since 2014. And I mean, they did so with a roster that was peppered with freshmen, absolutely peppered with freshmen. Sam King, a first year, you know, leading the way on offense. Miles Butkus, another first year, uh, doing that. Owen Gaffney also on the offensive end. And like, yeah, you did have Austin Madronic. You did have Hayden Cheek, guys who had been there, you know, previously. Kyle Mullen, most notably on the defensive end. But this was a team that was very much led by freshmen really throughout. Colin Bergstrom, uh, starting defenseman, was a freshman, as was Tommy Martinson there. And Chase Strupp was a junior. He was the only, you know, upperclassman, if you will, starting on that close defense. Ray Doth at the defensive midfield spot. Chase Yeager was a junior also at, at, on that rope unit. So not a ton of guys in that, like, top six on defense either that were veterans or really had any experience, you know, prior to this season. And they really hit the ground running this season, you know, beating, uh, you, you know, Boston U there, I thought really showed the, the, the Michigan game for me, holding that Michigan offense, which ended up kind of stagnating down the stretch. 
uh, really starting with the Harvard game, I would say, um, or the Notre Dame game, whichever one was first, I can't remember. Um, but, you know, that Michigan game, I think, really showed for me what this Harvard defense, what this Harvard team could do, and really how well they could play. They beat Brown. They beat Boston U. You know, they, they put it on Dartmouth. And, like, they came within one of Yale, a, 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 you know, an arch rival who they haven't beaten since 2016. They beat Princeton in what I would say was their biggest win of the season. And obviously they struggled in that game against Rutgers, especially late in the NCAA tournament. But they showed a lot of promise and they got pretty far. Um, You know, I thought they were going to show a lot of promise and we'd see a kind of blow up, if you will, next season or the year after. But no, you won. You won. Sticking in the New England area, Boston U, uh, a, a team I thought really, you know, coming in the season, I knew Boston U had a lot of potential. And I'd written about that. But, and, and look, they return, returned their entire attack line. Timmy Lay, Vince D'Alto, Luis Perfetto, one of the best polls in the Patriot League, and Roy Meyer, and then Matt Garber and Cage. Um, and, and I knew, like, okay, that, like, solid core they have is, is really good. And they're going to be a good team. I didn't. I, I did not see them winning the Patriot League at all. Um, you know, Connor called alone at the faceoff dot, and that ten man ride. They really you know, proved to be linchpins for them uh, to to help lead them to a more successful season than many imagined. Twelve and five, seven and one in the Patriot League. You win the Patriot League for the first time ever. And you go to the NCAA tournament for the first time ever. Really, a truly great season there for Boston U. Another team, uh, which I would say is probably the Cinderella of the season, was Jacksonville. And, uh, like, look, uh, we talked about the transfer portal a bit, and they got some guys there. Max Walbaum, Luke Milliken, really coming in and making a difference there. You beat Duke, you beat Denver, you beat Richmond, you beat High Point, you beat your four best teams that you play. And, um, you know, obviously they lost to Utah's one they want back. And, and maybe if they win that one, maybe they have a better shot at, you know, making the tournament as an at-large. You know, obviously they want that, that SOCON title back. Uh, they, they still have to win a conference title. They still have to make the NCAA tournament. But a really good season there for, the, for John Galloway and the Dolphins. And the last team I want to mention here is Ohio State. Um, Buckeyes were not ranked in the top 20 heading in the season. They had no preseason on uh, all, all Americans. However, by the time March hit, it was clear that Nick Myers, you know, had himself a pretty good squad there in Columbus. Jack Myers leading the way there. Uh, you see a defense that, you know, you know, has this freshman in Van Buren that emerges as the top cover guy. And, you know, you have Gallagher there as a, uh, grad transfer, you have the goalie, uh, you know, musical ch- musical goalies kind of went around early in the season, but they eventually get that situation figured out. The ride uh, there from Ohio State was pretty good. This was an Ohio State team that I think exceeded expectations. Um, you know, Ohio State's six losses, uh, you know, four of which were to the, to the same team, Cornell twice and Rutgers twice. 
uh, they also fell to Maryland and had like the only really bad loss I would say was to Denver. Um, honestly. So, you know, and, and they played Maryland pretty good in that game for the most part. So, um, at least in the first half. So really, really good season there. Um, overachieving, if you will, exceeding expectations for Ohio State. The only team I didn't really mention there that I think could add to that would be Princeton. Um, I thought maybe they did a bit more than I expected them to do. Uh, but, you know, Cornell, Harvard, for sure. Uh, Brown, when you look at the Ivy League as a whole, I think they overachieved just entirely. Uh, the league did was a lot better than I thought they would be, uh, you know, holistically uh, coming into this season. Robert Morris, maybe a team I would put in there. Uh, you know, he had a lot of question marks there with the new head coach and all of that uh, heading into the season. But, uh, you know, a number of teams you could argue for uh, on that list as well. But certainly Cornell, uh, you know, topping that being in the national title game where I don't think many uh, thought they would uh, be a team this season that, that got as far as they did. So, so yeah. All right, folks, that is it for today's show. As always, you can connect with us on social media at Lacrosse Bucket on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, lacrossebucket.com, where it's always lacrosse season. Again, thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll, be, we'll be back next week as in the as we head into the off season uh I'm going to start doing uh weekly podcasts certainly if we have some breaking news uh or anything of that nature uh we'll certainly hop on and do an emergency episode but during the off season I'm gonna do uh, once a week rather than the two or three times a week I did during the season.